Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us for Dinner with Jesus, a series exploring transformative mealtime encounters found in the Gospels. Together, we will discover the depths of these moments, revealing Jesus' mission of redemption through love and grace. We pray this message is a blessing. where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome, friends. Feel free to grab a seat. Uh, I've probably not had the chance to say just yet, but my name's Alex. Did I say that yet? Such a delight to meet you, and particularly if you're here as friends and family of Lily Borgett, Luke and Nicola, then just a warm welcome to you. We do this every Sunday at 4 p.m., And our heart is to see more people more like Jesus and see renewal in and through the Uniting Church in this great land we call home. Uh, And so it's my privilege to serve as pastor here. And my hope is that as we hear now from the scriptures, it would be less of me talking and more God through the scriptures to each of us as we sit. I'm going to pray one more time because I think I need it this afternoon. And then we'll jump into Luke chapter 10. Is that okay? Let me pray. Father, thank you that your word is a lion. And as Charles Spurgeon said, I'd sooner, defend a, I'd sooner defend a lion than try and contain your word. Father, there's so many people here this afternoon, and you know their story. You know what each of us need to hear. You know alone, only you know, God, what will nourish our soul this afternoon. I have no idea. But I know you've given us this text, and I know you've given us your spirit. And so, Lord, help me call to mind that which would be helpful and let fall away that which would be unhelpful. And would you help us all magnify Jesus as we continue in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There was a um, theologian, a monk, a scholar. This isn't the start of a joke, by the way. Uh, This is all one person, a guy named Thomas Merton, uh, who lived in the 20th century. And he's a bit of a mystic. He wrote some incredible things about God, a series of meditations on the Christian life and prayer. And one day, he was in a conversation with a Hindu who lived in Southeast Asia but ended up making their way to America. And they were talking about the impact that Christians had in Southeast Asia, particularly in India, the impact that Christians had in their missionary work, building hospitals and hospices and places of safety. And he said, this is what the Hindu monk said to him. I can't remember the name of the monk in particular, But the monk said to him these words, um, the Christian impact in India has been very small, very slight, not big at all. And the thing that we're looking for is Christians who genuinely know God, not who will build us hospitals. Now Thomas Merton ends up reflecting on this book uh, in a book called The Seven Story Mountain. And he had these words to say, 
He said the Hindus are not looking for us to send them men who will build schools and hospitals, although those things are good and useful in themselves and perhaps very badly needed in India. They want to know if we have any saints to send them. They want to know if we have any saints to send them. I don't like the dichotomy, just to be honest, but I like the thought. I like the thought that being in the Christian life could be more important than doing. That our communion with God and our contemplation on God might be more important, or at least the foundation of the kind of thing that we call service, good works, mission, and just doing stuff, you know what I mean? I, li- I like the thought, it, it really ministers to me because um, I think something goes wrong with our Christianity when we see it as a series of activities to be completed at the expense of accessing a deep communion with God. Something goes wrong with our Christianity when we pit those two things against each other rather than seeing one as the outworking of the former, a deep communion with God. Now, why do I start here? I start here because we've been going through a, um, a sermon series called Dinner with Jesus. And if you don't have a faith background and you're new to this whole thing called Christianity, um, just sort of like a a, a brief roadmap of where we've been going through. We've been walking through the gospel stories, the first four books of the New Testament, which are sort of like the biographies of Jesus' life. And the biographies of Jesus' life, they've just painted this beautiful picture in sort of 18 to 28-ish chapters between each of the gospels around who Jesus is, what he came to do, what he represents, and what he instigated. He's the Son of God incarnate. He came to announce and release the kingdom of God in our midst. He came to start that which only at the end of time will be completely fulfilled, the wiping away of every tear, the renewal of all creation and humanity on the way, caught up in that beautiful unfolding narrative. A few years ago, though, I was on Twitter. Remember Twitter? And uh, it doesn't exist anymore. But I remember reading a tweet by this theologian, and I'm I'm not making this up, who said there's multiple ways you can summarize what the Gospels are. But here's what he thinks the Gospels are. He would say like this, the Gospels are basically the story of Jesus being interrupted as he walks from meal to meal. I really like that. I love that. Now, it's a bit crass and crude, but this is what inspired this sermon series. We wanted to ask the question, if if Jesus were to dine with people in the Gospels, how do they react? And even deeper than that, perhaps even lower and more into the surface of our lives, if Jesus was to turn up at your dinner table, how would you react? If Jesus was to knock on the door of your heart, metaphorically speaking, and invite you into a relationship with him, what would you do? How would you behave? What would you respond with? Would you be comfortable or uncomfortable? Would you be scared or would you be consoled? If Jesus came to your dinner table and invited you with a prepared meal just to sit with him, know him, be known by him, how would you react? Now, in this passage, Jesus comes to the home of Mary and Martha. And I love this story. I love this story because you have on one hand um, someone who's very busy, someone who always finds himself trying to serve and do things for the person she holds most dear, that is indeed Jesus. And then you've got someone who seems to just live the unhurried life, hashtag, and just spend time at Jesus' feet and enjoy his communion and be a student of him. And it's this wonderful contrast. But the history of interpreting this text is actually quite interesting. In the medieval period, 
the church preached this text as a way by which to contrast activism and contemplation. And they would say, and you've probably heard this before, even in the contemporary church, they would say, don't be a Martha, be a Mary. Stop fussing, just sit. Don't be sort of overwhelmed with the priorities of serving and doing the busy stuff. Just contemplate, sit, relax, commune with Jesus. That's what the medieval church said. And then the Catholic church, just before the Reformation, they actually interpreted it a little bit differently. And trust me, I'm going somewhere here. They thought of this text as a, a way by which to say, Martha represents worldly work and Mary represents Christian work. Therefore, Jesus commends Christian work and Martha is the embodiment of worldly work. Don't be a Martha. Go serve God in the church. Go sit at his feet. That's how the Catholic Church, just prior to the Reformation, would unpack this text. And I think both of them are wrong, just for what it's worth. Because I think in this passage, we don't have a non-Christian and a Christian, a church person and a non-church person. We've got two followers of Jesus, both of whom outwork their discipleship in vastly different ways, both of whom have very interesting challenges as they navigate following Jesus together. So what do we learn? We're just going to jump straight through. I want us to notice first, before we experience life from Martha's eyes, I want us to notice just the radical nature of what Jesus is doing. You ready for this one? The radical nature of what Jesus is doing. Contained in verses 38 to 39 are some of the most radical, explosive words in all of the Gospels. I don't know if you know this. Uh, here in this passage, in verses 38 and 39, is something historically unparalleled, something radically liberating, and something personally empowering. Why? Well, at the time, contextually speaking, it was incredibly shameful for men to speak with women. I don't know if you know this. Now, this is back in Greco-Roman antiquity. But at the time, it was incredibly shameful for men to speak with women. Uh, I've got some quotes. One uh, scholar, who's a Jewish scholar by the name of Ben Sira, in 1 to 200 BC, he put it like this, sort of justifying why it should be shameful for men to speak with women at the time. He said, commentating on Genesis 1, from a woman, sin had its beginning. Because of her, we all die. Now, this is a very different century to ours. Very interesting commentary. I did not write these words. This is Ben Sirah. Take it up with him, okay? The Jewish scholar. He would love to talk with you. Uh, maybe something a bit further uh, before, the Mishnah, which is sort of like, you've got the Old Testament, sort of 29 books that all sort of capture the story of God with the Israelite people. And the Mishnah is sort of like an oral version of that. All the rabbis would sit in circles talking with one another about their interpretation of the Old Testament. And the Mishnah is sort of the, the remembered oral commentary on the Old Testament, if that makes sense. So rather than getting passed down in a book like the Old Testament, or scrolls, so to speak, it gets passed down through rabbis, remembering it and passing it on to their disciples. So the Mishnah in 450 BC, it put it like this, it says, let thy house be opened wide, and let the needy be members of thy household, and talk not much with womankind. Apparently they knew the King James translation of the Bible. Um, they said this of a man's own wife, how much more of another's wife. What's, what's he saying through some Shakespearean sort of Jewish literature? He's saying, open up your home. Speak with people freely. Avoid women, though. 450 BC. The Mishnah. Thank you, rabbis. Appreciate it. What does Jesus do? Verse 38 says this, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way 
And that word there is plural. So picture this, they're walking by the countryside, they're making their way to Jerusalem, they're on a mission. And he's with his ragtag bunch of disciples and anyone who would want to follow them. There's a group, plural, as they were on their way. Then it says, Jesus, singular, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. What's he doing? He's transgressing a cultural taboo. When I was, um, used to lead SU camps, I'll just illustrate this for a second, just so it's helpful, right? I used to lead SU camps and led on a camp called Splash Out. Met up at Luther Heights, shout out to my Lutheran friends in the room, thank you Luke and Nicola for bringing them. Uh, we would spend time, and, but here's what you couldn't do. If you were a guy, you couldn't go on the girls' dorm. And if you're a girl, you couldn't go in the guy's dorm, not because there was any fear that necessarily something would happen, it's just to be above reproach to ensure that nothing does happen. It was a cultural taboo. And here's Jesus in the first century context with all these Jewish rabbis and commentators and scholars saying, you would be very unwise, in fact foolish, to spend time alone with a woman. And Jesus goes to the home of Martha, who somehow bankrolled this home in the first century world of Bethany, and he's talking with them. So that's issue number one. Jesus is prepared to go to incredible lengths to speak to individuals, but that's not all that takes place and that's not all that's radical. Um, verse 39 says this, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Now at this point you're like, where's he going with this? Well, he, here's the point. There's a technical term used in verse 39 and the Greek of it is paratuspodos. Now you don't need to remember that, I certainly won't. But it describes the action of, quote, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And that's the phrase the Gospel writer Luke uses in this passage, describing Mary. Where's Mary? She is para tus podos. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. The only other time that that phrase gets used by the Gospel writer Luke is in the second book that he wrote called the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 22... Paul the Apostle, the Pharisee, the rabbi, the expert in the law, turned Christian missionary. He's narrating his own story, and he says in verse 3, describing his story, these words, and I want you to look out for a certain phrase here. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but I was brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. Now you might be thinking, what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. This is a technical term signaling the discipleship of a person underneath a rabbi. It's suggesting Mary's going through formal training. The only time that Luke the historian, the doctor, the guy that doesn't make mistakes, uses this exact phrase, and there's commentators that have noted this the world over, the only other time he uses this exact phrase is to comment on the formal training that Paul the Apostle received at the feet of Gamaliel. So what is Mary doing at Jesus' feet? What's happening in this room that Jesus crosses over cultural taboos to get to? What's happening that Martha's so ticked off about? What's happening is she's being empowered for a life of discipleship. She's learning. Now, here's the crazy thing about discipleship in the kingdom of God, particularly at least when it started in sort of Jewish circles. Discipleship wasn't just something you'd do to pass an exam. So you wouldn't try and memorize the first five books of the Old Testament just so you could tick it off with an exam with your rabbi. You would study 
so that you yourself would be a disciple who makes disciples who makes disciples, or in other words, so you yourself could become a rabbi. Do you see what I'm saying? Are you, are you seeing this? With, this is actually huge. Let me put it this way. I know of no other first century rabbis who would make females rabbis. None. Because there aren't any. Because women are those that it's shameful to speak with in the first century context. And then on top of that, to train them up into leadership in really what is the movement Jesus began, which we might today just call the church, is profoundly radical. But here you've got Jesus modeling with Mary this kind of one-on-one discipleship so that she too might learn the ways of Jesus, so that she too might not just be a disciple but herself a rabbi, so that she too, let me just put it this way, might be a leader in the movement that Jesus started. Now, some of you might be sitting here and you might go, Alex, that's actually kind of a tenuous argument about women in leadership in the church. Um, and I, I would just say that's, that's really fair. Um, that's really fair. This is just one strand in a plethora of strands that makes up, I think, what is a very compelling case for women in leadership in the movement that Jesus started that we call the church. But I go there because this is the first time in history that anything like this has ever happened, literally in history, not just in the Bible. And Jesus started the discipleship of women that led to rabbis, and who knows whether they actually became them, but at least um, in our contemporary church, this is something we champion and get behind, women in leadership. Let me just quote from Dorothy Sayers and move to my second point, because she puts it so well. She said, perhaps it's no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They'd never known a man like this man. There never has been such another. He rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unself-conscious. Luke includes this story in his gospel, not to commend Mary's contemplation and condemn Martha's activism, but to champion women discipleship and eventually their leadership. That's why he includes it in this story. Now, you might be saying, well, Alex, why bother going there? One, the text does. But two, uh, this debate comes up all the time. Two years ago, I had the privilege of addressing this question in a series we called Crucial Conversations. And the question was, should women be leaders? And such beautiful responses came to our church after that sermon series. But there was another response that came through a few people, and the response was this. Alex, man, it's the 21st century. Do we really need to address that question? In 1948, C.S. Lewis, the guy who I love, and I don't disagree with him on anything basically, but he wrote to Dorothy Sayers, who is the person from whom I just quoted, and uh, one of the big questions at the time was, should the church ordain women in the Church of England? And uh, C.S. Lewis was against this. He thought that there's no warrant for it in Scripture. And so he, assuming that Dorothy Sayers agreed with him, wrote to Dorothy and said, hey, Dorothy, can you use your influence to help me push back against this cultural tide of seeing women ordained into leadership in the church? And Dorothy wrote back and she said these words. She says, you're going to find me to be an uneasy ally because I see no warrant for your position. Now, why do I say all this? I say all this because we just baptized Lily. And this isn't prophetic. I'm not... Don't, don't, don't live under this. But let's say that Lily's got the call of God on her life. Now, that might be to the marketplace, which is just as important as the church. 
But let's say it's for the church, and she feels called one day to be a pastor, maybe even be one of our church planters. Here's my hope. My hope is that by the time Lily is old enough to plant a church, she's not our first female church planter. Just let that sit for a sec. We are a church that's passionate about seeing more people, more like Jesus, by planting and leading thriving local churches. I just want to own the fact that all of our churches right now are led by individual men. I don't think we should apologize for that. But I do think we need to be intentional about the ways in which we're championing, cultivating, habituating the raising up of our female sisters so that the leaders that find themselves shaping culture and casting vision and leading meetings and orchestrating events and ultimately pastoring God's people are women too. And so I put this to us, not because this is gonna be a decision that leadership makes now, it's gonna be a habit we all need to own together. And so what if one day, sure, Lily, when she's old enough, she plants a church because the call of God's on her life and we've created pathways for her to outwork that calling. What if she's not the first? How would that happen? One, we remind ourselves of the vision of the scriptures, that God would see no position in the church as uh, disqualified by virtue of gender. And two, we intentionally create pathways to see that unfold in and through our midst. Jesus did something radical, maybe we could too. It took a radically long time for me to do that preamble. Here's my question, why is Martha angry? Do you have that question? Why is Martha ticked? What's got Martha in a knot? Why is she so upset? Verse 40 says this, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, some scholars will say that Martha's angry because of what Jesus has just radically done. Martha is saying, Jesus, Mary's place is in the kitchen. Why aren't you telling her to help me? Why aren't you reinstating the God-ordained nature of things? I need help. There's a four-course dinner to prepare. Why won't you get her to help me in the kitchen? Some people think that that's the explanation for Martha's anger. I think that could possibly be part of it. I think it would have been weird for Martha to experience this on one level. But at the same time, I don't think that's the whole picture. That doesn't make sense of the text. See, Jesus has come. Martha is showing Jesus hospitality. She's got entrees, she's got mains, she's got dessert. It's like a full course degustation meal, the likes of which would turn James Street on its heels here in Brisbane City. It's like the full deal. She's got course after course after course, or even, let me put it this way, portion after portion after portion. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm cooking food, I can't do much else. I suck at multitasking, and it's not because I'm a male. I'll just say that much. But you know when you're cooking food and like, like say you're a small group leader and your small group rocks up early? Does anyone experience this? There's a particular kind of frustration. I'm just kidding, I'm looking at my small group in the crowd, love you guys. But seriously, I am terrible at multitasking and I find it really difficult when I'm cooking a meal to hold a decent conversation, so I've got to pick one. And Martha knows, because she owns the home, if she doesn't prep the food, then she, Jesus isn't eating. And so she's got this stress, she feels the full burden of responsibility to give the hospitality common in the Middle East to Jesus, their guest. But why is she angry? Well, she's angry. I don't think she's angry at Mary. I think she's angry at the situation. Mary isn't Martha's main focus. Martha 
is Martha's main focus. Martha's cooking is her main focus. In fact, the key person to which this whole pericope, this whole passage refers, is Martha. Jesus went to Martha's house. Martha came to Jesus and said this. Jesus responded to Martha and said, Martha, Martha, Martha is the subject of this entire passage, not even Jesus. Martha gets the run of the show. She's the main event in the course of cooking that she's preparing. Her house, her work, her tasks in Martha's eyes. It wouldn't matter what Mary was doing. It matters what she's not doing. That's what's going on in the passage. See, this is why she says, tell her to help me. Mary could have been baking a cake, but if it's not part of the course of meals that Martha wants to prepare, she would have been ticked. Why? Because it doesn't matter what Mary's doing. It matters what she's not doing. She's not helping me. Let me put it like this. Martha's resentful. Do you see that? Martha is resentful. The Oxford English Dictionary defines resent as bitter indignation at having been treated unfairly. Martha feels bitterly indignant and that she's being treated unfairly by the turn of events. How? Well, she presents to Jesus something of a scorecard. Just look at this with me. Notice this with me. Do you see it? She says, in a sense, parading her morality before Jesus, her service before Jesus, her works before Jesus. She says, look, buddy. It's one way to address the Son of God. Look, buddy, I've been slaving away in the kitchen. In fact, I do this all the time when you visit us. If you were to read John's Gospel, Jesus visits their house at a separate occasion and Martha is again busy in the kitchen, John chapter 12. It's always me who preps, always me who cooks, always me who serves, always me who cleans. When will I get a break? Now, the staggering thing is not what she's resentful about, but who she's resentful to. And it's the moral scorecard, the service scorecard she gives to Jesus, which makes her miss the fact, and here's the point, that she is standing before Jesus. She's saying, I've got all these courses I've prepared that I want to give to you. And, and Jesus is, in a sense, saying back to her, I'm the main course prepared to give myself to you, but you're missing me. Why? Well, you're full of resentment. You're busy with your own focus. Now, why do I say all this? Let me just try and pull this together with some kind of application that is coherent. Many people will say to me, um, and I think many of us intuit that one of the things that keeps us from God is our sin. Now, sin is a, actually quite a big word in contemporary Australian culture. What do we mean by it? Uh, is it a gross religious word that I've got allergies from? Maybe. But I think we intuit rightly. If God is good and holy and just, then that which keeps us from Him is our wrongdoing, our transgressions, our sin our selfishness. It just gets in the way, which is a very generous way of saying sin is sin. It makes sense. We intuit this to be true. Um, but here's what this text is suggesting. It's not Martha's wrongdoing that's keeping her from Jesus. It's her right doing. Um, one of the biggest barriers to our relationship with God is not our unrighteousness, but our self-righteousness. 
And I say this because this is somewhat of my story, and it's possibly all of our stories. It's, it's our morality, it's our serving in the church, it's our Bible reading, it's our repeated devotion, it's our prayer life, it's our busyness with the people of God for the people of God. It's our persistent hunger to try and do the right things before him that so easily devolve into this when we're before him. Don't you see this, God? Don't you see what I'm doing? And slowly but surely, we take our scorecard, which we interpret through our internal accountant of morality, and we go to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we say, check it out. Don't you see this? And surely don't you now owe this to me. Please help me. And here's what that does. Here's what resentment, here's what self-righteousness does to our relationship with God. One, it obscures God's love. See, who's Martha standing before? She's not standing before a tyrant. She's standing before Jesus. Jesus, meek and mild, gentle and lowly, kind and loving. Yet all she can see him as is as an obstacle, which is number two. It presents Jesus as an obstacle to God's plan. I don't know if you've done this in your life. I know that I certainly have. Um, If I really want something in life and I can't get it, then often God becomes like the thing that I, you know, get upset at for not having it. And on one level, that's fine. It's called lament and prayer, and it's really good. But on another level... If we position Jesus as the obstacle to our happiness, then it actually gets in the way of our relationship to him. That's number three, and just jump back with me to number two. It objectifies God's power. Let me put it this way. Um, We put Jesus uh, at the behest of our request, and we say, um, Jesus, you're purely a means by which I might, you know, this is what Martha's saying, you're purely a means by which I might get help for this thing I call a three-course meal in the kitchen. Meanwhile, he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. And we reduce our image of God to something of an obscure image, something of an object, or something of an obstacle. And all the while, it's our righteousness that gets in the way. This is what Martha demonstrates. So how do we resolve this? Here's my ultimate question. How do we get past this? What do we do to move past this? Verse 41, Jesus says, Martha, Martha, The Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Uh, There's another guy who translates it like this. Just, I think this will just get us right to the quick in Jesus' words. Ken Bailey says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious about many things. I understand the entire list. One thing is needed. What is missing is not one more plate of food, but rather for you to understand that I'm providing the meal and that your sister has already chosen the good portion. I will not allow you to take it from her. I just want you to notice this with me. Three chapters earlier in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee. And when he comes to the house, they don't welcome him, they don't give him food, they don't wash his feet, they show him no hospitality. And in response to all that, Jesus condemns them. Why? Not for eternity, just in the moment, just for what it's worth. We don't know their eternal state. But he condemns them in that moment, convicts them. Why? Because 
they intentionally don't show him the expected, required, culturally status quo Middle Eastern hospitality. Really simple. And in condemning that, he's commending therefore hospitality. So, what is Jesus pointing out in Martha's life? Because here's what he can't be pointing out. He can't be pointing out that hospitality is wrong because he just commended it three chapters earlier. So what's he pointing out? I think, personally, Jesus isn't condemning her hospitality. He's challenging her compartmentalization. He's not condemning her hospitality. He's challenging her compartmentalization. What do I mean? I mean that she'd grown so accustomed just putting her face down, walking through the Christian journey, serving God, doing the stuff, that she'd forgotten that the God she serves is the Jesus before her. Indeed, right there with her. And this is the fundamental thing that Jesus wants. Good works are good. Service is helpful. Mission is good. But if it's not done in relationship with God, it's unsustainable, and it's also not the point. In fact, one way to summarize what Jesus points out in Martha is this. You have lived a whole exercise in missing the point. You've missed the point. I'm the point. Not another course, not another meal, not another degustation, not another entree. I am the meal. In fact, the Greek language here, it, it says you are, you are, you're nervous and anxious about many, and it doesn't actually use the word things. Translators fill that in. And then later it says, but um, there is one thing, and the thing that Jesus points to is the word portion. And so when Jesus points out that there is a portion... Here she is over here preparing portions and portions and portions of meal. She's really anxious about the portions. And Jesus is saying in this beautifully poetic, wonderful way that we get in the original Greek, and oh my gosh, translations are hard. I'm the meal. I'm the thing that will sustain you. I'm the one. Stop being busy making stuff and get with me. Mary's chosen it. Do you not see this? Now, why do I do this? Why do I go all the long way around to make this really simple point that God's biggest desire is that we be with him? It's so we might find ourselves in the story. We so easily find it able to be the case that we're just a Martha. And to be a Martha isn't to be someone who's just activist. It's to be someone who takes their activism and just pulls it away from the presence of God. It's not someone who's a good server in church. It's someone who takes their service in the things of God and pulls it away from the presence of God and the, the person of Jesus. And, and Jesus would just say that's a huge exercise in missing the point and it's deeply unsustainable. Stop. There are better things. In fact, there's one thing, one thing that will sustain you for the rest of your life. Last year, I read a book by a guy named Sky Jathani, and this is just where I land the plane of my sermon. And um, the book is called With. Now, I feel like I've done a lot of language work in my sermon uh, today, so just bear with me for one more moment. But whenever you study a language, you learn something called prepositions. Anyone know what a preposition is? A preposition is sort of the joining word that combines two objects. And so you might say that Kath um, is with Alex. Um, or you might say that the church is on the rock. Or uh, the high rise is in the city. Or the plane is over the river. And I feel like we're just doing grade two stuff right here. I'm so sorry. But the preposition governs the relationship between the two objects. I don't know if you know this. Prepositions are really important. 
And in Skyjathani's book, he says all of us carry an assumed preposition in how we relate to God. Some of us live over God. And we make God the object or the obstacle to or against my happiness. Martha did that a little bit. Some of us live under God and we picture him as a distant, disinterested tyrant who's just ready to smite us. Sort of like a devolved Santa Claus. Some of us, some of us live from God and we're just looking for blessing and joy and all the things that make life actually okay and good. Some of us live for God and we think that the primary pursuit of our life is to do the stuff for Him, to serve Him, to love Him. And Sky Jathani makes the point that each of these are actually all legitimate. We see people serving for God, living and expecting from God, uh, in a sense submitting under God, under His authority. We see people in the functional atheism of the modern day world just living over God. But he says, you will not know which way to relate to God unless your fundamental relationship is to live with God. And that's Jesus' point here. Martha, you got the prepositions wrong. I want you to do stuff for me, but never at the expense of your being with me. It is good and right for you to live under my authority, but I've never come to do that in isolation from you experiencing life with me. There are gonna be times when you live your life over me and I've given you that freedom as a child with a free will of a mind, sure. But please always know my invitation to come back to live life with me. Again and again, this is the invitation of the gospel. In fact, this is the story arc of the Bible. I said before, one of the ways to summarize the gospels would be this, Jesus walking from meal to meal being interrupted. One of the ways to summarize the Bible would be this, God's looking for a home and he wants it to be you. Why don't you stand? We're gonna pray. Now, how would this be possible? How would it be possible to take all of our doing and all of our being and bring it into communion with Jesus? Will it be possible because of what he's done? See, he didn't just come to have meals, he actually came to share life with us and to live the life we should have lived, die the death we deserve, so that we, by grace through faith, might come back into relationship with him. I want you to notice something. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's not the only time she does it. In fact, in John chapter 11, John chapter 12, sorry, Martha opens up her home again. She gets busy preparing food. And Martha is at the feet of Jesus again. And the text reads something like this, that Mary came in, she poured expensive perfume on the feet of Jesus, and she prepared him for something which we later know from John's gospel was his burial, his death. And in doing that, she was sort of suggesting that the best thing she could do, the most fitting thing she could do is prepare him for the death that he was about to die, which would be the place with, it, with which he made restitution and substitution for all of sin. It wasn't just the last time she was at the feet of Jesus, pouring nard and perfume and anointing him. The gospel writers then suggest that Mary and another Mary 
and a whole host of other women found themselves at the cross, at the feet of Jesus. Now, I don't care who you are, not many of us have very attractive feet. You know what I mean? And it's weird that the gospel writers sort of present Mary this whole time, just going after Jesus' feet, sitting at his feet, anointing his feet, admiring Jesus from the position of his feet while he's on the cross. Why? And the answer is this, Mary listened. When the disciples came to Jesus and said, you can't go to Golgotha, you can't die. Mary comes and anoints his feet. Why? Well, I reckon it's because she was listening. I reckon when he told her, I need to die to pay for the sins of the world, whereas Peter just shrugged it off and John just forgot about it, Mary listened, which is why she was prepared to anoint his feet for the, in the preparation of the burial. And what's this all pointing to? It's pointing to this larger fact that Jesus in his life lived the life we should have. He did all the service. He did all the stuff. He, he won all the merit. He made all the performance. He took his moral scorecard and gave it to God. But never in spite or resentment. He gave it to God in a bid by which to say, I've, I've done it. It's okay. And because of Jesus' performance on our behalf, because of his way that he embodied so well, so beautifully on our behalf, it means that if we believe in him, follow after him, then we actually get his scorecard. We, we get his merit, we get his performance, we get his robe of righteousness wrapped around us so that when we stand before the Father, he sees Jesus, the beauty of Jesus. And that's the story of the gospel, that we get his place. Charles Wesley would put it like this, and this is where I just finish this off. He says, when he from his lofty throne stooped to do and die, everything was fully done, hearken to his cry. Weary working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so, cease your doing, all was done, long, long, long ago. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Do you feel burdened this afternoon? Do you feel incomplete? Is there lots for you to do? Join the club. And then join the club even further just by taking those things and saying, Lord, I'm not going to present to you my self-righteousness. I'm not going to present to you my scorecard. I'm going to give you myself. Because it's you who gave yourself to me and it's you who gave yourself for me. And I want to receive that. And so with every head bowed, every eye closed, I just want to make space for someone to anyone who'd want to receive Jesus into their life, just respond to that invitation. All you need to do is say, God, sorry, thank you, and please. If you would want to receive Jesus into your own life right now, can I just ask you with every head bowed, every eye closed, just to raise your hand where you are. And if you find yourself here this afternoon, and maybe you've walked away from God for a while and you've forgotten. And as you start to make your way back to God, you think, okay, now I'm gonna straighten up my life. I'm gonna get things good. When I come to Jesus, I'm gonna have a scorecard worth presenting. Here's what he says to you this afternoon. Lay it down. I'm not after your best, I'm after you. And I'll come for you at your worst, it doesn't matter. So if that's you and you wanna receive Jesus, because you've walked away for a while and you find yourself just strangely warmed at the possibility of coming back. Can I just invite you where you are just to raise your hand? We'd love to pray for you. So that's you, raise your hand nice and high. 
awesome. Thank you. I see that hand. Thank you, brother. I'd love to pray for you. Why don't we just pray alongside me, just in the quiet of your own heart, Jesus? Sorry. Sorry for ignoring you and forgetting that you're there. Sorry for thinking that I could perform my way back to you. Thank you that when you see me, you see your own goodness and righteousness and beauty, not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. God, please come into my life and help me follow after Jesus. For it's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, let's worship together. And the first lines of this song go like this. Here I am, down on my knees again. And what a wonderful way to respond in worship when Jesus' invitation is to say, where are you? You're worried about many things. Why don't we say as a community right now, here I am. And maybe you wanna be present to Jesus through prayer. We'll have a prayer team on my left, your right. Maybe one or two, they'll be in white lanyards. Just come and receive prayer for anything you're walking through right now. Let's pray and let's worship. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray you have a great week. Be blessed.